The executioner's duty began when they arrived at the prison before four o'clock on the eve of the execution. I'm meeting Gary Ewart, a man from Northern England who has studied the art of execution by hanging. I want to talk to him because in the 1940s, in Mountjoy Prison in Dublin, the Irish state recruited its very own Irish hangman, the one and only Irishman to ever hold that job and whose identity has never been revealed. On arriving there, they would be taken to the prison governor. From the governor, they received the details of the prisoner. His height, weight, physical state. Did he try to cut his own throat? Any injuries, things like that. All that's to be taken into account. Hangmen. To look into the eyes, place a rope around the neck and spring the trapdoor beneath someone's feet takes a nerve not found in many. The executioner and his assistant would be escorted to the condemned cell where they would walk through the Judas Hole in the cell door, the little spy hole that became known as the Judas Hole. It's over 60 years since the last hanging took place in Ireland. And in the history of the Irish state, 35 people were executed by hanging. There they'd look at the condemned. The executioner would say, what length to drop? The assistant would concur with him. They'd go into the execution chamber, rig the gallows, they would mark the rope with copper wire. Execution time were usually 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. All Irish executions took place at the hanghouse in Mountjoy Prison. For each condemned person, the last face they saw before death was that of their hangman. Mostly it was the face of a member of the Pierpoint family from the north of England. Usually about 6.30, the executioners would be awoken by a prison officer. They would wash, dress, go to the execution chamber. Everything's in readiness. And the noose is left hanging very straight at shoulder height. So as the condemned is walked in, the noose is straight on. What has puzzled so many is who was the Irishman appointed by the state in the 1940s as our very own native executioner? An Irish man to hang Irish men and women. And whatever became of him? The condemned is sat at a table on a chair with his back to the cell door. And that way the executioners are straight on to him. Left arm, up the back, strap on. The assistant will bring the right arm round and it's a double buckle strap, like this one. The idea is to get the body falling straight like a plumb bob. Today in Albert Pierpoint's home city of Bradford, Gary Ewart reenacts a part of Irish life that is now abolished. He describes the art of execution by hanging as if it were an art form. As the condemned person has led in, the executioner's in front of him, he will stop, turn around, stop the condemned walking, and his toes, which will actually go to the crossbar of the T. At that point, we'll put the white hood over the head, whilst the assistant is down on his knees with the leg strap fastening his legs together. Once the white hood is over, the executioner by that time is that quick, he's got the rope round the neck. Quick glance again, making sure the assistant is clear. Straight to the lever, safety pin out, lever over, gone. 10 to 15 seconds. I'm in Manchester because in 1945, Ireland's hangman was sent here for training to Strangeways Prison. He travelled using the name Thomas Johnston, 
However, his real name is believed to be James O'Sullivan. At Strangeways, he was placed under the supervision of Albert Pierpoint. In the 1940s, Eamon de Valera's government looked to recruit an Irish hangman. Now, there was obvious difficulties with having an English hangman coming over to hang Irish people in de Valera's mind. And they identified, or a person was identified, called James O'Sullivan to be an Irish hangman. How this came about is not known. There's no record in the National Archives. Tim Carey, writer and chronicler of the Irish Prison Service, has tried for years to solve the mystery of Ireland's hangman, but like all before him has failed. Luckily, whilst writing the history of Mountjoy, Tim was given access to the papers of a previous governor. Amongst these documents is a photo of the Irish hangman. I looked through all the newspapers. There was no ad that said, we're looking for a hangman. Do you think you could do the job? So how this person was identified or how he came forward isn't known. But in 1941, he wrote to uh, the governor of the prison um, about coming to Dublin and being, I suppose, interviewed for his job. And he was very uh, aware that uh, he didn't want to be uh, known by anyone. Um, So he he was definitely going incognito. And he wrote to the governor saying, um, I'll meet you at the train station and this is my description. Age 46, height 5 foot 7, medium to stout build, erect bearing, clean shaven, fresh complexion, blue eyes, small straight nose, good teeth, fair hair, turning grey, bald and temple with a slight growth of hair on top of head. I should be wearing blue suit with grey hair stripe, black shoes, blue velour hat, if dry, and this is where it gets sort of a bit spyish, if dry, I shall carry on my left arm fawn colour shower-proof coat. If wet, I shall be wearing that coat. On arrival at Kingsbridge, I shall go towards the engine and remove my hat and rub my forehead for a moment. So it was all very uh, um, Berlin Wall type stuff. Kingsbridge Station is now Houston Station, Dublin and still a national rail hub. Hangmen arriving at Mount Joy to carry out an execution did everything to disguise their real identity. The Pierpoint family were allowed to carry a gun when they arrived in the state. As IRA members were amongst the condemned, each hangman knew that a death threat hung above their heads. Everything about our Irish hangman is shrouded in mystery and soon his identity morphs into another. James O'Sullivan was given the alias uh, Thomas Johnson with a false address, and he was given a false travel document by the Irish state. The travel document was used to allow James O'Sullivan to go to Britain, to Manchester, to Strangeways Prison, to be educated as a hangman. That's where British hangmen were trained, and he went over in 1945 to be trained as a hangman. The Irish hangman had no ordinary mentor, Albert Pierpoint is credited with an excess of 400 hangings during his career. And he was far from impressed by Ireland's apprentice executioner on their first meeting, as he recounts in his autobiography. I did not think he had the character to be an executioner. He was old and short and timid. When I first took him into the execution chamber, his face went as white as chalk. But I gave him the basic training and he went back to Ireland. Tim Carey explains that a full two years passed before James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, the Irish hangman, was called to carry out his first execution. 
after his training, he was supposed to take over all the executions. He was uh, called to Mountjoy Prison for one execution, but uh, the person was reprieved. And then in March 1947, uh, Joseph McManus was sentenced to death for the murder of Alice Gerrard in County Meath. So Thomas Johnson, or James O'Sullivan, asked, could we get our friend to come back over from England, and our friend being Pierpoint, um, to assist in this execution? Because he said, you know, it's the type of thing that you don't come across every day. It's a lot to ask any man to carry out an execution, no matter how experienced or skilled. James O'Sullivan had only two days training, two years prior to this hanging. Albert Pierpoint remembers being called to Mountjoy Prison to assist a very nervous Irish hangman on the occasion of his first execution. After shaving and washing, we went back to the execution chamber for the last preliminaries. But again, Johnston had forgotten his part and I had to keep stepping in to help him. The governor asked if all was satisfactory and I answered that it was as far as I was concerned. He asked Johnston if he was all right and Johnston said yes. The governor saw that I was not too happy and he walked away to talk with one of the officers. He came back and said, Mr Pierpoint, I think you should take charge. The governor looked across to see how Johnston was reacting. And my own interpretation of his attitude was that he was very pleased. Very well, Mr Pierpoint, said the governor, you take over. I agreed, and the execution was carried out to everybody's satisfaction. The night before the hanging, O'Sullivan was restless, clearly afraid of leaking his true identity, afraid of the consequences for his own life. Johnston went to bed before me, but for a reason I could not fathom, I suddenly woke up. I did not move, but opened my eyes, and there I saw Johnston, out of bed, emptying all his pockets of wallet, letters and money, and putting all his possessions under the pillow. Next morning I was awake before Johnston, but did not get up. He rolled over in the dawn light and said, Are you asleep? But I did not answer, so he took all his possessions and put them back in his pocket. It occurred to me that it was his letters and papers that he was being most cautious about, and I concluded that they would bear his name which was not Johnston, but something he was trying to keep secret. I did not blame an executioner in the Republic for wanting to keep his identity secret. After the execution, O'Sullivan and Pierpoint left the prison together. McManus was hanged, their work done. Both men headed for a train station, but even then the Irish hangman took trouble to hide his true identity and destination from his colleague and mentor. Outside the station we shook hands and he said he hoped he would see me again. Out of curiosity I let him go ahead and followed to see what train he would catch. But he took a left fork and bypassed the station and went on into town. And that was the last I saw of him. And the last he saw of the gallows. I was called to Dublin on a number of occasions afterwards. And I never once saw Mr Johnston. Albert Pierpoint continued to act as executioner in Ireland until the last hanging in 1954. For almost 50 years, James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, existed only in a couple of paragraphs in Pierpoint's autobiography. But Ireland is a small place. Degrees of separation are narrow. It's hard to keep a secret, as Tim Carey was about to discover. I used to work in Kilmainham Jail Museum, hence my uh, interest in prison history. And there was an event in the prison one evening, and Senator Joe Costello was at the event. And I was standing there chatting with himself and um, a man called Pierpoint, who was one of the, the vicars from St. Micken's Church. Obviously, the name prompted a discussion about Hangman. He said he wasn't related to Pierpoint, and we got talking. And then Joe said, 
Oh yeah, I was on uh, travels as a a student or you know a kind of a gap year thing in the 1970s in South Africa and Swaziland and I came across the descendants of Ireland's hangman and I was there I've never heard anyone even know about Ireland's hangman at this point a bizarre encounter a bizarre story especially when this whole thing is so shrouded in mystery that this random meeting in in a in a shebeen in the middle of Africa may prove to some shed some sort of light on what happened or who was Ireland's hangman. In 1979, a young backpacker, who would later become a senator and TD, arrived in the capital of Swaziland, a small landlocked kingdom bordered on three sides by South Africa and with a population of just over one million. It is absolutely ruled by King Maswati III and his 15 wives. The capital of Swaziland is Mbaban, and back in 1979, the then 24-year-old Joe Costello was tired, hungry, and needed a place to stay. So we arrived late at night, it was well after 12. We came into this late night restaurant, stroke club, I think it was. Then we were in one of the booths having, having something to eat when this bunch of Swazi women came in. They were singing songs and so on, and the next thing is, one of them broke out into a song, Galway Bay. <laughs> so that was quite a surprise. Joe was invited to join the company of the Swazi women. He discovered their father was Irish and that his name was Thomas Johnston. Little was Joe to know that almost 40 years later, that chance meeting would lead me to Swaziland in search of James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, the Irish hangman. Well, we, we remember very well crossing the, the stream in the middle of the night. It would be about two o'clock in the, the night and the, the moon shining on the, on the water and the stepping stones going across the river as we climbed up to where the, the bungalow was. It was on its own, just on the suburbs of the town. Hanging in the hallway was a posthumous portrait of a man. But the interesting thing is, as soon as I came inside the door, she pointed out her father, and her father was a white man. It looked very much like somebody who was dressed in the style of James Connolly. Starch collar, tie, stern type of gentleman. The following day, I met the family, and um, they, they said that their father had been the hangman in South Africa. He had married a Swazi woman, and um, every St. Patrick's Day, he'd bring the the local dignitaries who were also Irish, the parish priest and the, the judge to his home. They all arrived on horseback and one or two others and they all had to bring a bottle of Irish whiskey and they all had to drink that bottle of Irish whiskey before they go or otherwise they, they took it with them. Nothing left on the premises and at the stroke of midnight they had all to get back up on their horses and off again. So he seems to have been quite a disciplinarian, but uh, these were little memories that they had. And uh, more sinister, he told me about on one occasion when he was displeased with one of the servants. He had taken him out to a tree and was in the process of hanging him when his wife came out shouting that the police were coming and in that way managed to stop him from hanging the, the servant. That summer, Joe continued his travels throughout Africa. But that one particular story lodged itself in his memory. Almost 40 years later, 
and two years of research brought me no closer to the family he met in Swaziland. Average life expectancy in that country is in the mid-40s. It has the highest rate of HIV cases in the world. Having exhausted all official research channels into the search for James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, the Irish hangman, a chance suggestion led me to the Irish missionaries abroad and to a Salesian missionary in particular. Father Martin McCormack is based in Malkerns, Swaziland. At the edge of a township in 30 degrees of humid heat, I meet Father Martin in the welcome shade of his veranda. So Martin, do you mind telling me um, the response from, from your side when you got that email from me? Well, I suppose my first response was one of humour, like, I mean, what, what a story and what a connection with Ireland in a small little African country. And I said, it's just amazing. And then I said, it's almost un unbelievable. So that's why my response was yes immediately <laughs> to, to following it up. I know our hangman James O'Sullivan was given the pseudonym Thomas Johnston because the travel document issued to him by the Irish state in 1945 bore that name along with an accompanying photograph. In classic Irish fashion, even in Swaziland, a priest had the contacts to unearth a missing link. Father Martin managed to find a grandson of the Thomas Johnston Joe Costello had heard of years earlier. Because the name was very significant, it wasn't. I checked the name and made a few phone calls and John surfaced very quickly. Uh, so you just kind of developed from there and then you know, I asked John a few questions and the information you sent me, it seemed to crisscross. Later that day, I am sitting opposite John Johnston, an African man who clearly has a mixed race background. Until this moment, this is as close as I've got to the Irish hangman that I'm searching for. Hello, John. Welcome. I'm Joe. Very pleased to meet you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, thank you, John, for coming to see us. Uh, we've we've heard about you from Father Martin. Yeah. Yes. Do you remember your grandfather? Yeah. Did you like him or were he? I didn't like him. No. Why was that? He's a man that kept to himself. He was actually a cruel man. He was cruel with the blacks. Why do you say that? Because when he was doing farming, if they go and steal for him, he used to hit the poor blacks. You put there, like if you find them stealing, take their hands and put them in a vice, like that, for the whole night. And tightened. Yeah, and tightened it, and then when it's... So you stand the whole night, you don't sleep. Did he ever talk about his time in Ireland? No. Nope. Never talked about home. Because he's a funny man. Hangmen need another income. It's not every day you execute someone. Albert Pierpoint ran a pub. Some were bookies, some were barbers. Thomas Johnston was a farmer. John's memory is not as good as I might like. He is not in great health. But the images he recalls of his grandfather are both dark and grim. I'd hoped for more. But then, just as we're parting, 
I'm surprised to discover that a daughter of the hangman is alive and residing only a short distance away. It's only my auntie that's left out of the whole family. She's the only one left. All the others are grandchildren. John needs a little coaxing, but he agrees to bring us to meet his auntie Eve. I'm hoping that this might be one of the girls that Joe Costello met in the nightclub in Emberban back in 1979. So, if, if, thank you very much for, for agreeing to meet us. Um, we've, uh, we're interested in, 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 your, in your father. Um, I understand he was an Irishman, is that right? Correct. Do you know what part of Ireland he was from? Uh, Dublin. Was he? Mm-hmm. Okay. And did he, why did he come here? I, well, people come out, you know, to different countries, you know, to experiment while you as a farmer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and do you remember, um, you, you, obviously you, you remember your father when you were growing up, what sort of a man was he? Very strict, very strict man. <laughs> we're not allowed to even eat chewing gum. <laughs> He made us work on the farm. If we wanted pocket money, we had to do some work. <laughs> During my conversation with Eve, she confirms that she is one of the family of girls that Joe Costello met in 1979. I, I love my dad more than my mum. It's amazing. <laughs> so he must have been fairly affluent then. You know, his farm must have been successful. Yes, lots of cattle, sheep. And how did he accumulate his wealth then to be able to farming, buy Farming, farming. But from coming from Ireland then, I presume? He yeah, well, he worked, I think, in South Africa and oh. then came out to Swaziland. What did he do in South Africa? <laughs> it was not a good job. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was a hangman. How long was he hangman in South Africa? Oh. I wouldn't really know. That was before my time. <laughs> you need a certain skill to be able to do that particular job. Oh. So where would he have learned his skill? I don't know. Maybe in Ireland? I don't know. Must have been in that country. We did have a hangman in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And his name was Thomas Johnston. That's it. That must, uh, that must have been my father. Thomas Johnston, yeah, but they called him Tommy for short. The only photograph of James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, is the one from the travel document in the Mountjoy archives. As I hand the photo to Eve, I hope the quest is now ended and the mystery solved. No, no, no. Yeah, is there any resemblance there? No, not. <laughs> My first reaction, I'm stunned. My second reaction, this cannot be a mere coincidence. So I'll give you a call and tell you what time I'm coming. Thank you. Eve and I decide to meet up the following day and try to make sense of what we've learned. Over coffee, we explore what we now know. Eve's father, Thomas Johnston, left Dublin as a teenager and became a hangman in South Africa before finally moving to Swaziland. It was always his wish to return to Ireland at some point. 
Sometime after 1941, James O'Sullivan had been appointed state hangman and he was given Thomas Johnston's identity. The identity of an existing Irish hangman, but on the other side of the world. What better cover could James O'Sullivan have wished for? Anyone wishing him harm or seeking his true identity would follow the wrong trail and the wrong man. He believed he'd never be found. Back in Ireland, I look to authenticate my theory. I speak to Professor David Doyle, a leading academic and expert on capital punishment in Ireland, and tell him what I've found out. It seems an incredible coincidence that uh, an executioner here in Dublin would be given the exact same identity as an Irish man who was acting as an executioner in South Africa at the very same time. So either these individuals were uh, acting in parallel existence or perhaps that Thomas Johnston had applied previously for a job here in Dublin, then emigrated and then the existing Irish executioner was giving that particular pseudonym. In my view, it seems more than mere coincidence. Given that the Thomas Johnston in South Africa is not the native Irish hangman I'm looking for, it feels like I'm stuck in a cul-de-sac. Over the next few weeks, I re-examine everything I've seen and heard. Historian Tim Carey mentioned the false name and false address provided to James O'Sullivan on his appointment as Irish hangman. With nothing more to go on, I decide to take all information from the Mountjoy archives at face value. An address of number one Lower Dublin Hill, Cork City, is on a 1941 correspondence to the Mountjoy governor from O'Sullivan. This might be one more false lead in the web of deception created by our Irish hangman, but it's worth the trip to Cork. Blackpool is one of the oldest areas on the north side of Cork City. The houses here were built to accommodate manual workers. Number one, Lower Dublin Hill, is the first in a terrace of small houses whose front doors open directly onto the street and whose back doors open onto the Dublin-Cork railway line. Doesn't look occupied, looks derelict. No, number one's completely unoccupied. Uh, the door is boarded. This, this has not been occupied for years. Plaster's fallen off it. But number two looks in very good condition. Maybe we'll try and see if there's anybody home here. I tried most doors in the terrace before my knock was finally answered. Sorry to bother you. Um, I'm just curious, we're, try we're trying to uh, trace a, a family that might have lived in number one. This, this is Lower Dublin Hill. Yeah. Um, O'Sullivan's, would you have known them? I'll tell you now. I remember Mr O'Sullivan. He was a good bit older than me. He used to wear a hat. The only thing positive I remember about him is he had a car. When no one had one. Here, like, in this area, or any along this street. Well, what did he do for a living? I hadn't a clue. And, I mean, you won't get anyone much older now hanging around here than me. That house is idle, I suppose. 25, 30 years must be far apart. 
On the furthest end of the terrace from number one Lower Dublin Hill, there is a family-run pub, Gainey's. The lunchtime clientele is local. They're from the north side, sir. The north side, Little Road. Our curiosity attracts their curiosity. So why all the interest in the Sullivan's? Are you related to him or something? We're trying to find uh, his... Um, James, uh, yeah. Yeah, doc- documentary on one, yeah. Any memories of the O'Sullivan family from number one Lower Dublin Hill are of Maureen, a spinster lady who died in the 1990s, a daughter of James O'Sullivan. As a matter of fact, her relations are living in Delaney Park. The first terrace on your right, Pauline Collins, would be Maureen Sullivan's cousin. If I can locate the woman they tell me about, then I believe I will have found the hangman's niece. I think we'll do that so. Good luck. I hope we find this out was, something we It was we very nice know. meeting you. And Thanks for all your help. And and very Thank you. All right. Walking back up Dublin Hill, I noticed somebody entering one of the houses I had knocked upon earlier. Oh, hello. How are you? I know. Hi. You saw us here earlier on. I'm sorry to bother you. Okay. We're trying to find out about the family that lived in, in number one. Uh, oh, Maureen? Yeah. Maureen, yeah, I yeah. remember Maureen as a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She was just a love knitting. What's this in reference to us? Oh, we're, we're working with RTE and we're making a documentary. Okay. And we're trying to do a little bit of research on, on the family, and particularly would have been her parents. I remember her father was kind of a low-sized man and he was, he was cranky enough when we used to be running around playing and that. I still have the photograph with me that I showed to Eve Johnston in Swaziland. James O'Sullivan described himself in 1945 as a low-sized, hat-wearing man. Perhaps this is as good a time as any to produce his image again. If I showed you a photograph, right. a very old photograph, but was taken when Mr O'Sullivan, James O'Sullivan, would have been 45. Yeah, yeah. That's him. Yeah, that's him, but he was heavier now when he was older. How old is he there? 45, there. Is he? Good. He looks older. Than he looks older, he does, yeah. Yeah, but he's very distinct uh, sort of cheekbones there, you know, it's a... a yeah. There's a little, do you see that, that, that description there? Uh, that first, that's a letter he wrote at the time. And he describes himself in the letter. Medium to stout build. What I just said, that is so funny. Clean shaven, blue eyes, straight nose. I, I remember him bald, yeah. Overcut. That's weird that I just more or less said that, yeah. Now yeah. Here's, here's one for you. Would you have known what his occupation was? No. We think that at one stage in his life, in the, in this, around this time, around 1943, 1945, 1946, that he was a hangman. Oh, Jesus Christ. You're not serious. Wow. Are you related? No, first, before to say anything. He was a very cross man. You know, like, once or twice the mothers had to come out and tell him to have manners on him, like, the way he'd come out after the kids. But, oh, my God... Well, it's not the sort of an occupation that you'd be going around telling people about. No. But, uh, that is mad. Before meeting that remaining James O'Sullivan family relative, I've a detour arranged in the archives of Cork County Museum. I'm hoping to find some reference to our hangman there. Afternoon. Kieran, why is this? me. Oh, I'm Joe Carney. How are you doing? Grant, we were going to try and, try and find if we could something about... Yes. Um, James, James O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan. 
Over the course of the next few hours, and with the help of archivists Kieran Wise and Karen O'Reardon, I trawled the records for James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, the Irish hangman. So, and what's the name of the person? James O'Sullivan. Oh, God, could we get any more comments? No, I know. Right, no, no, okay. Yeah. And uh, have you a rough idea so of when he died? We know that he died sometime after 1966. <sighs> okay. Just to make it easy for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, In South Africa, Swaziland, and Manchester, I searched for the hangman using a name. Having verified that number one Lower Dublin Hill is not a false address for O'Sullivan, I can now safely add it to the search. And it is only then that the real life story of Ireland's secret hangman begins to unfold. He features in newspaper articles, but in different contexts to the ones that I expected. There's an, uh, an inquest here, an inquiry into the, a young man's death who was knocked down by a bus and the driver remanded on charge of killing him. It happened at the Cork District Court, 1932. Now, the interesting thing is that James O'Sullivan of One Lord Dublin Hill gave evidence. He declared that he was a timekeeper in the employment of the Electricity Supply Board. He knew the deceased. The next record of James O'Sullivan is in 1933 when his family were prosecuted for lack of sanitary arrangements at number one Lower Dublin Hill, Cork. As a result of pleading poverty, they received a small fine of six pence and were told to have the problem sorted within 30 days. At this stage, James O'Sullivan is supporting a family of four children on a low paid salary. These must have been difficult years. By the time his letter of application for the position of hangman arrived at Mount Joy, he was clearly hoping for an occasional income that would improve family circumstances and that no one would know about. But <laughs> I'd, ne- I'd need a little bit more time kind of to, to go through it. Um. During all my research of both local and national archive databases, I find no trace of James O'Sullivan as hangman, just James O'Sullivan, ESB timekeeper. So you've two ways that you can use this. You can use it the same way as you would use Google in that you put in a search. However, my research unearths one incident that I find hugely ironic. And this irony would have been invisible to all until this point in the story. More than 20 years on from the morning that James O'Sullivan's nerve failed in the hanghouse at Mount Joy Jail, he did actually kill somebody. So at Middleton Court yesterday, before Justice K.I. McCourt, James O'Sullivan, one Lower Dublin Hill Cork, that's our man, was returned for trial on a charge of dangerous driving causing the death of Anthony Hegarty at Gary Spillane County Cork on August 20th, 1966. The court found him guilty of careless driving, but did not impose a custodial sentence. James O'Sullivan was 71 years of age. The final reference that I can unearth for James O'Sullivan is his death notice. Here it is. O'Sullivan Cork. On February the 10th, 1978, at St Finbar's Hospital, James O'Sullivan won Lower Dublin Hill. Deeply regretted. RIP funeral today, Monday, after 2.30pm Requiem Mass at the Church of the Annunciation Blackpool to Rathacooney Cemetery, 
And this is in the Irish Examiner on Monday the 13th of February 1978. Later I get to see a copy of James's death certificate. It tells me that he died from bronchopneumonia and that he was 80 years of age. The only other details I can glean on James O'Sullivan are from census and archive records. He was born into a large working class family on the south side of Cork inner city. As a teenager, he was employed as a helper on a horse-drawn delivery cart. At 18, he married Kathleen Lynch. His 16-year-old bride brought a dowry with her, the house at number one Lower Dublin Hill, where James resided all of his life. He joined the fledgling electricity supply board as a timekeeper and remained with them until retirement. This was a man who kept his head down for most of his life anyway. Earlier, the customers in Ganey's pub gave me the address of James O'Sullivan's niece. That evening, I knock on her door. I'm hoping that I finally meet someone besides myself who is aware of O'Sullivan's secret. I'm also hoping for family photographs and memories, memories of a father, brother, or in this case, an uncle. Uh, my name's Joe Carney, Joe from Carney. RTE. We're trying to trace the family of James O'Sullivan. Oh, yeah. Number one. Married to an aunt of mine, yeah. Yeah, yeah we were, somebody told us today that you might have been yeah, related to yeah. yeah. the auntie kitchen, they live below it, number one, below the bridge. Yeah. Actually, the house is idle for the last few years oh, now. Yeah. You want to come in a second? Yeah, do you mind? No, not yeah, at all. Very kind, thanks very much. My mother and James O'Sullivan's wife were sisters. And have you recollections of you know, the family there when you were... Oh, I do, yeah. yeah. My mother was very friendly with him, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy, Su- Jimmy, we used to call him, Jimmy Sullivan. Or would you have gone down there yourself? You know, you would have oh. been at the house and... Oh, no, no, when we were young, I remember going down there, but not for a long time, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And would you have a clear memory of him now? I would, yeah. He worked in the SB, I think. Mm, yeah. Jimmy Sullivan, yeah. Yeah, we're just curious about him, and you're probably curious about why we're curious about yeah, him, you I know. Am, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll tell you now in a second. <laughs> um, if I showed you a photograph of him um, when he was, uh, he would have been about 45. Now, this is, you know, obviously, oh, you, you'd, have back, known, yeah. you'd have known him much yeah. m- when he's much older than that. But just curious to know, would you recognise him from the photograph that I'm going to show you? Okay. Uh, so it's an old black and white photograph. Uh, he used to drive a car, right? so I know he used to drive. Yeah, he had the car back all those years ago, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now again, that would be, yeah, nineteen, uh, you know, nineteen forty-five. I think that was issued, and he would yeah. have been forty-five himself. Yeah, yeah, at that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be him, alright. Yeah, an old, and you remember him as an older man than that photograph. But you would, you would recognise him from. Why oh, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you mind? Do you know that there's there's a little uh, a letter that he wrote at the time. Just do you, do you want to have just read it there? And would it, he describes himself in it? Would that description fit in with the man that you remember when you were growing up? Let's get the glasses now. <laughs> Age forty six, height five foot seven, medium, the stout build. I shall be wearing blue suit with grey hair stripe. I shall carry on my left arm. Yeah, that was his so describing himself. Yeah, and w- would the description tie in? Oh, would yeah. He always wear kind of as you say the fawn coat. He'd always have a. A coat over the suit, like he always dressed well. Do you know, just that's all I can really remember of him. Like Jimmy, Jimmy, they, we used to all call him Jimmy Sullivan. Yeah. Well, what sort of personality was he? I don't know really. <laughs> you know, my mother and himself. I think they weren't the best of friends. I don't think. <laughs> you know, so. 
So you might have been in a sort of a severe enough manner, a strict yeah, manner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, would it surprise you if you knew that in his early career, or in his, in his middle years, that he was a hangman? Mm. I don't know. Oh, sure. I'm shocked. <laughs> now, as I say, I didn't know anything about him, like, but it's for being a hangman. It's a different story, isn't it? Like, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise you, or, or I wouldn't know it? anything about. I never heard a com- you know, coming. I know, you know, he's, he worked in DSP. My mother never spoke about anything of that, like. I was sure you were going to bring out a photograph. I was sure they're going to be there. It's a <laughs> wedding somewhere, and you're going to say, "There he is in the background. Look at him." Yeah. He was well gone by then. It's a. Thanks very much. And if I come up with any information, I can give you buzz if I hear anything. Okay. Thanks again, boy. The front door closes behind me and Pauline is left in the living room with her son and granddaughter trying to make sense of what she has just heard. The uncle she knew carried a secret that he hid from all, including his wife and family. It might explain the distance in his personality. James O'Sullivan is buried in a graveyard less than 15 minutes' drive from Pauline's home. When I arrive there, there is just enough light in the sky to read the grave markers. This evening, there is no one present but myself, and it takes a while to find the O'Sullivan family plot and headstone. I pause before James's grave and say a silent prayer for the hangman, the man who led me from Mount Joy to Swaziland and to Strangeways Prison in Manchester. He hid himself in plain sight and fooled all, and I can't quite believe that at last the quest has ended here in a cork graveyard. In loving memory of Jim O'Sullivan, late of one Lower Dublin Hill, died 10th of February 1978. Rest in peace. And here it is. Peace and quiet. In a sense, at the end of a journey. So here lies James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, the man described by Albert Pierpoint as too old, too short and too timid. The father of four who married at 18. The first man to own a motor car on his street. The man who chased the noisy children away from his front door. The quiet man that nobody really knew the timid timekeeper who aspired to be an executioner and who kept his ambitions quiet. How James O'Sullivan, a.k.a. Thomas Johnston, became Ireland's first and only native hangman and how the Irish state ever gave him that job, we'll just never know. But he is the man who concealed his actions from all the man who carried his story to the grave, and the man who was Ireland's secret hangman.